Amen. Amen. Thank you. I mean, thank you for doing this, not for getting out of my way. But thank you for getting out of my way, too. Uh, I, I just want to reiterate how much I appreciate people that are willing to get involved in this and spend their time, you know, and they do. They spend inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how to budget the, the finances that we have and stuff, and that's pretty awesome. Because if it were up to me, none of this would be here. I, we'd be, you know, we'd maybe meet in an alley somewhere if if I could get organized enough to get there. But I'm grateful for that, it, you know, for the Easter thing. So, you know, we have a sunrise service and people will come up to want to give an offering or something. And, you know, several people tried to hand me checks and I don't do that. I don't know. I know zero about what's happening here financially. And I'm sorry if that I was told before that that's a very immature position to take and I'll own that. Uh, but I don't do finances. I'm no good at it. I know I can't, I can barely count. So I'm not going to, you know, get involved in this and make a mess of things. So when people try to hand me checks, I've kind of like, I, every, yeah, Blake was saying, Rob looked like he didn't know what to do with his hands. He is freaking out over the whole thing. So I'm so grateful that we've got uh, hearts and minds that are willing to do this in such a, a beautiful way, and I appreciate it. So we had a great Easter um, uh, weekend, and I love, I love that time of year, just that ever-present reminder of, of what it is that Christ has done for us, the hope that we have of the promise of a new life that that begins here, that extends into eternity. It's wonderful. But today we're going to uh, come back to our study in the Gospel of Luke. Even though Easter was kind of a spoiler for how this story goes, uh, we're going to continue on in this. Um, who knows what a mondegreen is? A mondegreen. Nobody knows what a mondegreen, okay? This is cool. You're going to learn something. I don't know if it's interesting or not, but it, a mondegreen... Mondegreen, G-R-E-E-N, is a term used to describe a phrase or especially a song lyric that has been misunderstood or misheard and repeated incorrectly. It usually is something that makes sense in your head as you're hearing the song, but it's entirely incorrect. You know, there's all kinds of examples of this. As a child, I always wondered why Olive was so mean to Rudolph. Because, of course, Olive, the other reindeer, used to laugh and call him names. I remember when Crystal Gale, years ago, was warning about gluten, way before we knew anything about it, when she was singing, Donuts Make My Brown Eyes Blue. Or, or, or Eddie Money, who, who would lament about the state of his poultry farm when he was talking about, he said, I got two chickens with parrot eyes. And, and it was always very interesting. They say that Mondegreens... And they're actually, they're, they're rarer now because of the change in technology. You'll find very few modern songs that have Mondegreens associated with them. Because back in the day, we'd hear music on what was called a radio. And, and the songs would just play, and we had no control over it whatsoever. It was a crazy, wild world to live in. And you didn't have song lyrics in front of you or any way to access them quickly. So you'd hear a song and you'd mishear what it was saying. And your brain would make the assumption that it was the right thing. And you'd hear it repeated over and over again with nothing correcting your mistake. And it would suddenly become canon in your mind. It was a very common kind of thing to happen. In the section of Luke... (laughs) <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? Well, in this section of Luke that we're going to be reading today, we're going to encounter what I consider to be a gospel mondegreen. That is, it's an event that I believe has been largely misunderstood 
And we've developed a whole religious ethic based on that misunderstanding. And if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along with me today, if you go to Luke chapter 19, we've entered into the final act of Luke's gospel, his story of Jesus. Jesus has now returned to Jerusalem. Last time we got together, it was on Palm Sunday. We read about Jesus entering Jerusalem and he was employing a lot of symbolic activity as he came into town. He rode on a donkey uh, and uh, coming in, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of Israel's king of peace arriving, uh, but arriving in this kind of a fashion, which was in stark contrast to the kings of this world. He followed the same route as Simon Maccabee, uh, who went in and and delivered Jerusalem, but he's done this in a completely different way, not as a as a violent revolt, but as a peaceful revolution. Today, we're going to be reading about Jesus clearing the temple in Jerusalem of money changers and animal vendors. And that may be a very familiar passage to some of us. And like I said, I believe it's sort of a gospel mondegreen in that I believe people understand Jesus's action as a statement about commercialization and greed within the temple religion at that time. That's something that I always held to. It's something that I've taught that way. But I've learned, however, that this event represents something far deeper and actually more meaningful than just warning against mixing commercialism and religion. Not that it's a bad thing. You know, not, not that it's wrong to, to warn against mixing commercialism and religion. That's certainly a good thing to avoid. And there are other areas of scripture that would deal with that or at least imply that. The thing is, I just don't believe that's Jesus's point in the section that we're going to be reading today, in the actions that he does in the temple. So why did Jesus do this strange thing that we're going to read about. It's a, it's a familiar image. You may be, even if you're not even familiar with the gospel, you may be aware of that. There was a moment in time where Jesus goes into the temple and does this strange upheaval thing. Why did he do this? What does it mean? And what does it mean for us today? That's what we're going to be considering. So if you're there in Luke chapter 19, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 45. Jesus, remember, has entered into Jerusalem. He's wept over Jerusalem because he sees what's coming, the destruction of 70 AD, verse 45. It says, then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. After that, he taught daily in the temple, but leading priests and teachers of religious law and other leaders of the people began planning on how to kill him. But they could think of nothing because all the people hung on every word that he said. Okay, I want to consider this event. Now, Luke's account of this is very brief. In the other gospel accounts, we have Jesus going in. There's, a, you know, this t- t- telling, telling that he flipped over the money tables that were there, went and fashioned a whip just on the spot. How often can you do something like that? Well, have fashions a whip and is driving the animals out of the place. And and so. I've heard a lot of views on this event. I've read articles by Bible critics who denounce this as hypocrisy in light of Jesus' teachings on love. They're saying that this show of vindictive fury should have been beneath him and is contradictory to his message uh, of love. But is this a, a, a you know, vengeful fury uh, that's being demonstrated here? I've also heard the other extreme from a 
former megachurch pastor who imagined a more macho, macho brand of Christianity. And he describes Jesus like an MMA fighter here, uh, going in and beating people up with a whip and everything. And that somehow made this guy admire Jesus more. Uh, I'm not sure about all that. This is a guy that was famous for saying, I can't worship a God that I could beat up, which is totally crazy because you crucified him. But either way, what what is this that was happening here? What happened here? Uh, is this a fit of rage from Jesus? Was he coming unhinged because the, there was financial corruption in the temple? I believe that those ideas, while dramatic and you know, can kind of stir us in directions quickly, I, I believe they missed the point entirely. I don't believe Jesus was getting all aggro and picking a fight, lashing out in anger, nor do I believe he was addressing commercialism uh, of the religion of the temple. Well, then what was he doing, Rob? <laughs> so, well, since you asked, I believe that it's important for us to see this, this event properly. Jesus was in the pattern of an Old Testament prophet acting out a prophetic judgment on the temple itself. See, the, the buying and the selling, really, when we look at this, was not a problem in, in this situation. People had to come from great distances to be able to observe the Passover. God had commanded them to come and celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. They were fulfilling the Old Testament law by doing this. And they had to bring, they had to have an animal. If they brought the animal with them, the, the lamb, it had to be spotless. And if you're traveling a great distance to get to Jerusalem, you're running the risk with that lamb of it getting nicked along the way, could get caught up in a briar patch somewhere and get a cut on it. Or even worse, it could get bitten or eaten by another animal or stolen by somebody. According to the law, the animals for sacrifice had to be perfect without any nicks or scratches or flaws. That's why there were pre-approved animals there at the temple that the priests had already examined. And, and when you've got a huge flow of people coming in, it makes sense to not bog the priesthood down trying to examine every animal that's brought in from somewhere else. If you've got animals that are already pre-approved by the priesthood, a person can go and, and receive that animal, take it and deliver it to the priests that are going to perform the sacrifices. Um, and so... That seems fairly legitimate. The only currency that you can use to pay the temple tax, which was also a requirement of the Old Testament law, was the, was the Jewish shekel. You couldn't use foreign currency inside of the temple. So it was absolutely mandatory that people coming, and especially if they're coming from Hellenistic cities, which many of them did, that would only be using Roman currency. If they're coming in, they're going to have to get that exchanged somehow in order to pay the tax. If you can't pay it with anything but shekels, then you've got to have money changers out there that are going to exchange your Roman currency for Jewish currency. That's how you're going to be able to comply with the law's demands. The point is, what was happening at the temple wasn't necessarily out of order. It was actually making everything run efficiently so that people could be faithful to the temple religion as it had been set up. So then we have to wonder, then what is Jesus doing in this action? I believe what Jesus is doing, since the whole system was set up to make everything run efficiently, Jesus is interrupting the sacrificial system. He was stopping the normal activities of the temple, even for just a short time as a prophetic symbol, as a prophetic gesture against the temple itself, the system as a whole. Not just commercialism in the temple, 
but the temple itself and the system of religion associated with it. The disruption was a forecast of the destruction that was about to face them in 70 AD. Jesus knocking over tables is akin to the walls of the temple come crashing down as he forecast in the last section that we were looking at. So you could say, but Rob, why did he call it the den of thieves then? I mean, isn't that sort of denouncing like some sort of price gouging? Doesn't that mean that they were practicing thievery there among the people or maybe charging too much? Well, no, actually. Uh, When Jesus says, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you turn it into a den of thieves. He's quoting two Old Testament prophets there. He's quoting Isaiah and he's quoting Jeremiah. And those are like we've talked about before. Tim Mackey referred to them as hyperlinks. We've got to look at those and, and examine what was being said there. And they're meant to be a reference to help us identify what it is that's happening in the text that we're reading. So in Isaiah 56, let's read that. In Isaiah 56, the prophet declares, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord. Here's something that's an important part of this because all of these money-changing tables and the animals were set up in what was called the court of the Gentiles, a partition that they had created in the temple to keep Gentile people away from the main area of the thing. So if you were Jewish, you could explore any part of this. But if you were Gentile, non-Jewish, you had a court that you were limited to. That was not part of the original tabernacle design. That was something different. So anyway, so... I'll bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord. Verse 7, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem. I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is what Jesus is quoting when he's there in the temple. According to Isaiah, the temple should have been a place where God drew foreigners to himself alongside of Israel, but that's not what the temple had become. In fact, a big wall was built to make sure that the foreigners were kept out and kept in their place. So instead of being a place where all people could come close to God and pray, it became a painful reminder of their distance from God. The second quote is even more damning. In Jeremiah 7, God's rebuking the leaders of Israel just before the Babylonian invasion. And he says this in Jeremiah 7, verse 4, Don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Down to verse 9. Do you really think... You can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all your other new gods, and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we're safe, only to go back out to do those evils again? Don't you yourselves admit this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves? This is what Jesus is quoting when he's there at the temple. And then he goes on in Jeremiah to forecast how the temple is going to be destroyed by Babylon. These Old Testament references were meant to explain to us what's happening in this gospel event. The temple had become a superstitious talisman. The religious leaders in Israel felt that they could do whatever they wanted to benefit themselves at the exploitive cost of the people that they were supposed to be serving and still be safe 
because God's temple was there for them to hide in. That's why he calls it a den of thieves. It's not that they were robbing the people there. Thieves, robbers don't rob their own hideout. They go back to their hideout to hide after they've done their misdeeds, after they've committed a crime. So we could really say, it's akin to saying it's a criminal hideout. That's what the temple had become. And by these quotes, we realize Jesus wasn't trying to clean the temple up and make it less materialistic and more spiritually focused. He wasn't trying to restore a better order to this thing. He was stopping temporarily and symbolically what would soon stop completely in the temple's destruction. The temple system was being judged in this act. But then we think, well, but why? Like, why? Well, the answer to that becomes clearer as the New Testament unfolds, as as the rest of the writers weigh in. But in short, it's because God never wanted religion as an end in itself. His people are his temple. That's the way it was always supposed to be. And we need to keep it clear in our thinking that the temple was not just a nice building where people could gather and do religious stuff. As New Testament Christians, we oftentimes will conflate the idea of the temple in Jerusalem with a church building somewhere. But the two are nothing at all alike. The temple was a symbol that visually represented God's intent to live in his creation with his beloved humans to rule the earth through them. The temple was a picture of original creation where heaven and earth overlapped like the Garden of Eden. And God and humanity are dwelling together with humanity representing his divine rule. Everything about the temple, if you take any time to study it, everything about it is meant to mimic the Garden of Eden. All of the pictures and the things that they wanted to put up around it all are representative of paradise. The palms and all the pomegranates and things like that. The priests in their activities were doing basically performance art going through and acting out what Adam and Eve were supposed to be, representing the humanity before God or the creation before God, and then going out and representing God before creation. This was the whole concept. That's what the temple was symbolic of. The temple building was never meant to be permanent. It was never meant to become the be-all and end-all of Israel's pursuit of God, but it had become that in their experience. The gospel story is telling us that Jesus is, is the ultimate reality that the temple was pointing to all along. It's in Jesus that heaven and earth, God and humanity are reconciled and become one again. And that means then as, as his followers, we as those who've identified with Christ and committed our lives to him, we're restored then to our original vocation for humanity, to be image bearers of God, representative of his loving rule to the rest of creation. We, that's why Peter says it. That's why Paul says it. We are the temple of God. We are where heaven and earth overlap and meet. Right here, you, you and I, each of us, individually and then corporately together. And then with this community, with all of the communities who believe in this same hope all over the world, we are the temple of God. We then are supposed to be welcoming to all people 
to come and be reconciled with God. We are, through the way that we live and the way that we love our fellow human, revealing what it's life like when God's will is done on earth like it's done in heaven. That's our vocation. And, and it's, it's huge. It's our calling as Christ's people. And it's, it's almost overwhelming, but it fills every aspect of life with meaning and profound purpose to be that place on this earth where heaven and earth overlap, where the reality of God can be demonstrated and shown to the creation around us. It's also why our Christian life is more organic than just perfunctory religious performance. As Jesus showed in this prophetic protest, a temple structure like any religious structure, is too easy to become something that we hide in. We're called to be in a reconciled relationship with God, which then is revealed in our life. That is, how it is that we communicate with our fellow human, how it is that we treat and act towards our fellow human, how it is that we conduct ourselves in this world, in this life that we've been given. This is how it is that we picture what the world can be like when it's like it is in heaven. And that, of course, is a lifelong pursuit. You know, this is this calling that we've been given, this return to original vocation. This isn't something that we flip a switch and we're right back there. This is this lifelong pursuit of what it means to follow God, to learn about who he is, to figure out what his values are, to determine how those values get represented into this world and how it is that we interact with each other based on those values. A mere religion, just a religious structure, is a place uh, that you homestead in. See, what God calls us to is this lifelong journey. Religious structures, that's a homesteading thing. That's where we put down stakes and we stay right there and we never move on. We just stick with what we were told and we don't learn, we don't grow, we don't develop, we don't move forward into this amazing calling that we have. Okay, so Jesus does this act of protest and the leaders of the temple are just so moved by it that they determine they got to kill Jesus. Uh, but they're afraid and they're afraid because of how it was going to look. So that's important. That leads us into the next chapter, uh, the first eight verses. This following conversation is connected to this event of critiquing empty religion. Verse 20 starting or chapter 20, starting with verse one it says one day as Jesus was teaching in the temple and preaching the good news in the temple the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Well, let me ask you a question first, he replied. Did John's authority to baptize, he's talking about John the Baptist, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven? Or was it merely human? They talked it over among themselves. Hmm, if we say it was from heaven... Well, he'll ask us why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, I mean, the people will stone us because they're convinced John was a prophet. So they finally replied that they didn't know. <laughs> and Jesus responded, yeah, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, this is where we're going to stop today. Obviously, when Jesus shuts down the temple operations, that's not something that goes unnoticed. I mean, clearly it made a ruckus. Now, 
How, how widespread and for how long that lasted, we don't know. But clearly it was an event that took place that, that got people's attention. And it says then that the leading priests, this is the top dogs of, of the leadership of Israel at that time. The rest of the elders are demanding some explanation. This is huge. We haven't seen this in the gospel yet. This isn't like the rural rabbis and Pharisees who've been, you know, coming up to Jesus and questioning him. This is big. This is, this is getting called in to a, to a congressional hearing on something. This is huge. This is a big deal. Flashbulbs are going off all around them as they come up to present their complaint to Jesus. And their question is, by what authority do you disrupt the temple and who gave you that authority? In other words, who do you think you are? And who gave you the right to supersede our authority? That's what's implicit in everything that's said there. And it's an impossible question that they're posing to Jesus. They're doing it publicly. You know, they come to where he's teaching. So they disrupt his teaching to, to present this. And, and it's, it's impossible because there's no answer that Jesus can give here that's not going to get him into trouble immediately. On a public, you know, in a public forum like this, if he says that his authority comes directly from God, they can accuse him of blasphemy. That's going to perplex a lot of his followers. And he you know, can get written off very quickly that way. If he says he's doing this by his own authority, well, then he can be branded as a rebel and turned over to the Romans as a seditionist. So there's nothing that Jesus is going to be able to say in answer to this on the fly in a public setting that, that isn't going to create a whole lot more trouble. So Jesus does this cool you know, wabbit season, duck season thing that he does all the time. He reverses the trap on them. And he asks them an equally impossible question in a public forum uh, about John the Baptist. Was he of God or not? Simple question. And so they huddle up and they confer and they realize they can't answer that in a way that isn't going to reflect poorly on, on them. And so they plead the fifth. You know, I, you know, I, I don't know. And there's so much irony in this, in what's happening here. They are the ones who are supposed to be representative of Israel's spiritual authority. They're coming and questioning Jesus' authority. And yet these elders and priests, the ones who are supposed to have the authority, confer with each other when looking for an answer. So notice they don't look to God. They're not praying in this. They're not seeking God's wisdom or how it is that they should proceed from here. In fact, they never even look in God's direction in this. They only look at what? Each other and something else. The crowd. All the people standing around them. And the irony of this reveals yet another danger of religion as an end in itself that a mere outward show of religion will encourage a narcissistic spirituality. Now, narcissism is a personality disorder that, where people have an exaggerated sense of their own importance and excessive need for admiration and a lack of understanding of other people's feelings. When narcissism is cloaked in spirituality, it's horrifying. Uh, you know, history is replete with, with incidences of this. Things like the, ch the crazy church that I was a part of in my formative years as a Christian get birthed from this sort of narcissistic spirituality. Listen to Christianity Today's podcast about the Mars Hill Church. It's a textbook example of this point. 
The religious leaders, I mean, they're astonishingly honest as they discuss this question that Jesus posed. They admit they're afraid of the crowd, afraid then of losing their own appearance and position of respect among the people. I believe when they're saying the crowd will stone us, they're speaking in hyperbole. In other words, you know, they'll, they'll string us up if we do this. That's the whole idea. It's a terrible, you know, result if they do that. So it, it, that's the kind of vernacular we may have used at one time. As they discuss what to answer, it becomes pretty obvious they don't believe that John the Baptist uh, was anything but just another crank out in the desert but they're not willing to own that. They refuse to be honest about their opinion of him, and instead they keep a ruse going to ensure that they continue to rank as influencers among the people there. They didn't seem to care at all about God's view concerning any of these matters. The whole thing was built around PR, public relations. Their need for admiration and control ultimately became the most important thing to them in this entire construct. And look, I mean, all we got to do is look at the news on a regular basis. This entire celebrity church monster that we've created, that we've created, puts this on display on a regular basis. Can we go a month without some megachurch pastor falling in disgrace and in because he's been insulated from from any sort of accountability within systems and structures that have no accountability whatsoever only push for celebrity and celebrity is so important in our culture because that's our last our, it's our last gasp attempt at finding transcendence we're a disenchanted culture. We don't believe in anything that can't be empirically proven. But boy, if you got celebrity, man, that goes on. You can worship a celebrity from the 30s and 40s who's long dead. But man, they've transcended to this new light. We love celebrity so much. This is our new religion here in our country. And our church has fallen prey to that. But listen, it's too easy just to pick on all that to sit back and throw pot shots at somebody else. What's the challenge that we face from this text? What are you and I going to walk away with from this? Well, the thing is, we have to ask ourselves, how badly do I want people to admire my spirituality? How honest am I about my own walk with God in my daily life? Can I admit to doubts or questions or struggles that I may have? Or do I only show off the victories? Do I only represent my life as victory after victory? And do I represent those victories in ways that are maybe exaggerated just so that I look a little bit better at the end of the day? That kind of a mindset is only steps away from the Pharisees and the religious leaders that we're looking at. And all of these can be steps that lead us further from God's intent for our lives. And listen, it's not that God wants us to be screw-ups. I've been looking for screw-ups. No, you didn't have to look hard for that. It's not that God wants us to be screw-ups, but better an honest screw-up than a religious actor. 
Because if we've seen anything in Jesus' life story, has been, if we've been reading through the gospel, what is he constantly coming against? The hypocrisy, the play acting at religion. History has revealed that religion as an end in itself is a dangerous force at work in this world. One that is always present in the context of any spiritual walk. And we here in this room are not exempt from the dangers of that. And that sort of thing doesn't happen all at once. That sort of thing happens by degrees, subtly, by subtle, small choices that we make, even just in our thinking. It doesn't have to be a whole life, just sections of life, partitions that we build up where we reserve the right to put on a good outward show and hide any struggles that we may have ourselves. And of course, again, it doesn't mean that, you know, we have to walk around waving a flag with our failures on it everywhere we go. How are you doing today? Oh, well, you can't believe all the things I messed up today. And, you know, I'm sorry I asked. Uh, it, but we can, we can look at our hearts. And really, that's what this comes down to. It's not about whether or not, you know, I can make you okay with me or me okay with you or anything like that. It comes down to our own hearts, to look at our own hearts and, and discern how it is that we project ourselves to each other and in this world and why. Why? This, this idea of a narcissistic spirituality is dangerous because it's deceiving. Because like we said earlier, it, you know, if we begin to, to prioritize people's view of us, over our actual relationship with God, our reconciled relationship with Him, well, it will begin to take over everything. We have the right appearance and people approve of who we are and maybe somebody starts to look up to us or even expresses that interest in in looking up to us. And man, it makes us feel good about ourselves. That feels good that these people admire me or this person admires my spirituality or has complimented this or that. That feels great. And little by little, it's that feeling that we strive for. And before we know it, that becomes substituted for our relationship with God. Not overtly in our thinking. Not that we say, oh, I want that good feeling. I don't want God. We conflate them. I'm seeking God because I feel good about this. This is making me feel really good. I must be getting closer to God. What's interesting is, if you look at the biblical narrative, it's usually the opposite way. (laughs) It's usually we get a little closer to God and suddenly we're like, I don't feel good at all. (laughs) But it's all right. It's what God's doing in, 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 in caring for us. That's the good news. Jesus is still in the temple cleaning business. He's never going to let us get comfortable with pursuing religion instead of him. He'll take us to scriptures like these right here and force us to confront it. And and he'll disrupt our lives and our thinking because of it. But that's all right. That's the good thing that he's doing. That's all part of his purpose in reshaping us and drawing out of us what's best, not just religious conformity, but real changed hearts. So let's commit our lives to God. Let's allow him to clear out the religious clutter. Let's surrender our desire for reputation in exchange for an honest pursuit of him. 
an honest pursuit of God, his values, his purposes, admitting along the way, we don't do this well. None of us does this well. That's all right. He's guiding us and leading us. And that's what he's saying. It's all right. I'm guiding you. I'm leading you towards me. God wants us to live in freedom, honest before him and each other. And it's in that environment that real, real, lasting change actually takes place. So let's strive for that most of all. Right on?